The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And with that, let's go ahead and look at Revelation 15. For though I know, I think we have some visitors today. We do just about every Sunday, whether you're visiting in person or out there in video land. Thank you for tuning in with us or being with us literally as a visitor. We don't know why you're visiting necessarily if we haven't met you yet, but we're thankful you're here. We just come together as the people of God, the children of God who love Jesus Christ and know him personally to worship him because that's what scripture calls us to do. He's worthy of worship and we also have the privilege to hear from God literally through his word, the Bible, scripture. This is how God speaks. We can know what God thinks from the Bible, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. All of it is equally important and inspired by God and authoritative and relevant to our lives. We've been looking at the book of Revelation. We're going through one chapter at a time. It's 22 chapters. We are now in chapter 15. Revelation tells us how the world is going to end. There's some encouragement to saints who lived in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, some churches there that John the Apostle knew, and he was encouraging them because many of them were undergoing persecution. Some actually very severe persecution, even to the point of death. We know that from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as they were being oppressed for believing in Jesus. And then after encouraging those saints from 2,000 years ago, John goes on through the Spirit of God to encourage saints and churches throughout all of history and really emphasizing the more he goes into the book of Revelation, trying to encourage the saints at the end of the age, literally at the end of history, during this time called the Great Tribulation. We know it's called the Great Tribulation because Jesus gave it that title in Matthew 24. He expanded on phrases that Jeremiah had used in 500 B.C. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Joel and others called it the day of the Lord, very specific phrase. Daniel called it a time of tribulation, uh, and there are other synonymous phrases all throughout the Old Testament. They're all talking about the same time period. So Jesus is the greatest Jewish rabbi and master teacher, speaking to a Jewish audience, all of whom knew their Hebrew scriptures like the back of their hand. When he referred to the great tribulation in the book of Daniel, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew that it was a future event at the end of the age that culminates many of God's promises. One of those promises that God would pour out his final wrath on a sinful and wicked, rebellious world. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about something literal. It was yet future. Daniel tells us it would be a seven-year period. John, in his revelation, gives more detail to it defining the seven-year period. Actually, it's two parts, three and a half years and three and a half years. The first three and a half years leads up to the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. The first three and a half years is ramping up God's wrath, working towards his final judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Those first three and a half years, Jesus called birth pangs, whatever those are. Birth pangs, if you're a mother, you know what birth pangs are. If you've been pregnant and given birth, one of the most excruciating experiences a human being can go through is giving birth. 
and leading up to the time of birth are birth pains, signs in your body that begin to build more and more in terms of the severity of pain and it's also a signal. Your body is giving you a natural signal that the time is near and that's why Jesus called the first three and a half years birth pains. So we've looked at the first three and a half years in Revelation chapter 6 uh, all the way up to where we are now, chapter 15. In about chapter 12, we were introduced to the beginning of the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, and that's where we are now. That's the context. And before God pours out his final judgments, which we're going to see in Revelation 16, God, through his Holy Spirit, has been giving us background information in chapter 12, 13, 14, and even today, chapter 15. Four chapters of background information preparing the way to understand in detail the implications of the last seven bold judgments that come in Revelation 16. And they're explained in detail in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Uh, if you haven't been with us, I know that's a, a lot of information. But just stay with us. We're going to look at Revelation 15. Today we only have eight verses. So praise the Lord, you get to go home early for brunch. Not, not if I teach a two-hour sermon. Um, there are only eight verses, but it's very rich. There's some good background information. But before I delve into chapter 15, I do want to follow up. I've had, this week was no exception. Today was no exception. Had some really good questions from those of you who have been in the Revelation study with us. Asking questions, whether personally, right after the sermon, uh, Sunday mornings as I arrive, as you've been ruminating on it or didn't catch me, shooting me an email, phone call, text. And so, love to answer your questions. Some are more difficult than others. Uh, so I just want to address a couple of those. Here's a question. Chapter 11, this was a few weeks ago, someone asked me after the sermon, Pastor Cliff, did you say Sodom and Gomorrah on Revelation 11, verse 8? And I said, yes, I did. And oops, that was wrong. It's uh, Sodom and Egypt. That was a good question. But I challenge you, if you stand up and just talk for 55 minutes, you'll probably make a mistake. That's why you need to be Bereans and follow along, read your script. Hey, wait a minute. That isn't what it says. Especially if you don't stick to your script. Uh, you might say something unintentional. But that was a good practical question. Another question I had, which is a more difficult... Actually, some of these questions I got, I couldn't answer on the spot, or I just kind of fudged it and pretended I knew what I was talking about. And then I had to go back in a panic and study and research. But one difficult one I received was after I preached on Revelation 13 about the, the rise of the Antichrist, and it talks about, depending upon your English translation, it says that he had a wound that he healed from, and they asked me, so I've heard that the Antichrist actually dies and comes back to life, or he just got hurt really bad and got healed and didn't die. Which one is it? And then when I preached on that, it was clear. The Greek language is very specific in Revelation 13.3. My English translation doesn't give a very good rendition where it says one of his heads had been as, as though it had been slain and his fatal wound 
was healed. That, that is not what the Greek text says. Uh, the word thanatos for death is used two times in that verse in reference to what happened to the Antichrist. Literally says he died. And he was literally, he took a blow of death unto death. That's what it says. He received a blow of death unto death and then was healed. And we talked about how that word for healed was the most common word used in the Gospels when Jesus did supernatural miracles, even raising people from the dead. So does the Antichrist die and come back to life? I would say, based on the text, yes. How is that possible? Isn't that a supernatural activity? Yes. And he receives his supernatural abilities from Satan and from God. God allows it. And that's why the whole world is amazed at the Antichrist. So that was a good question that I got. And then there was another one on Daniel chapter 12. That was a very difficult question. And my answer was, oh, well, we're not in Daniel 12. So you got another question? <laughs> anyway, uh, so here's a good question. This is hot off the press. If we know that many things need to still take place before the return of the Lord, like the building of the temple, remember we looked at uh, Revelation 11, there was a prophecy that in the future, and it's literal during the tribulation, God appoints someone to literally build a temple in Jerusalem. And we know from Old Testament prophecies, a literal temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem for these things to transpire. And there is no temple in Jerusalem right now. There's a mosque where the temple should be, but there is no temple. Um, so if we know that many things need to still take place before the return of the Lord, uh, like rebuilding the temple, how can we as Christians cultivate the blessing of an attitude of his imminent return? Imminent means his soon return, his impending return, his... Actually, technically, the word imminent means it can happen without anything else having to transpire before that. It can happen at any time. Nothing else needs to take place in order for the next imminent event to happen. So how can we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, waiting as though his coming is imminent, that the coming of Jesus could, could happen at any moment, yet at the same time, as we've been studying Revelation, we see that all these things have to happen. Israel has to be regathered in the land. That's a prerequisite. They have to build a temple. That's a prerequisite. They've got to get rid of that mosque on the mountain. That's a prerequisite. There has to be someone who arises from a ten-nation confederacy who takes over power of the world as the Antichrist in a one-world global government. That's a prerequisite. And then this mark on the hand and on the forehead for every citizen on planet Earth to buy, to purchase, probably to fly on an airplane, to shop at Safeway, to go to a 49ers game, you need that mark. That's a prerequisite. So how can you have all these prerequisites and at the same time we say Jesus could return at any time? Well, to me that's an easy answer and that's uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and also 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. What does that mean? Well, here's something you don't have. A mystery was new information. This was not taught in the Old Testament. What I'm about to tell you. A mystery. As a matter of fact, when... Paul is writing the book of Corinthians in mid-50s or early 50s A.D. 
When he says, behold, I tell you a mystery, this is so new information, Jesus didn't even teach on this, what I'm about to tell you, during his public ministry of three years. That's a mystery. Almost all of the book of Revelation is a mystery. It's new information that had never been taught before, given to the Apostle John in the mid-90s AD. And the Apostle Paul was given several mysteries of the church, new information. Peter didn't know it because Jesus didn't tell him. That is why in 2 Peter 3, the end of his epistle, Peter's saying, oh yeah, that Paul guy? Yeah, he's an apostle. Yeah, he wasn't one of the twelve. Yeah, I know his epistles are really, really hard to understand. I know Romans. I can't get through Romans. It's difficult. So he's got some hard stuff. And Peter was probably saying that because a lot of it was new stuff. But he was affirming it was divine revelation. It's the word of God. So a mystery. So going back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And then he tells us about the rapture. He calls it the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then he explains it in detail in 1 Thessalonians 4, and even gives more detail in 1 Corinthians 15. That a rapture could happen at any time where Christ comes for his people. Very clear. Snatches us up, and we meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. So you can read 1 Corinthians 15. So my answer to that would be, you can still have an attitude of imminence, because Jesus Christ could come at any time. Because clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, teach, I think, an imminent rapture. And at the same time, that's different from the second coming, the parousia, the unveiling of Christ described in Revelation 19 at the end of the age. Those are two different events. You mean Jesus Christ is coming two times? That's not in the Bible. Well, actually, he's coming at least three times. Because the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be coming. The Messiah would be coming. And the Jews of the Old Testament always understood that as the Messiah is coming one time. Think about that. You're one of the 12 apostles with Jesus. All you know and all you can think of is the Messiah is coming and he's coming one time. And when he comes that one time, all promises will be fulfilled. And they got a, a rude awakening or an awakening with more revelation when they found out, oh, the Messiah isn't coming just one time. He's coming at least two times. That was news to the Old Testament Jews. They didn't know that. So it turned out that Jesus came as the first time as the suffering servant to die. And then he comes the second time as the reigning sovereign king who will judge his enemies. That is yet to come. That was totally new information to Old Testament saints. They didn't know that. That's why even the prophets were always scratching their head about the timing of the coming of of the Messiah and how to reconcile all these prophecies. They just couldn't do it. This just doesn't make sense. How can he be, how can he die like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and at the same time usher in the kingdom and, and reign with the earth as his footstool as described in Psalm 2? How is that possible? Couldn't figure it out. It took the New Testament saints, New Testament revelation, the death and resurrection ascension of Christ to finally figure that out. So, Long answer, but it is a complicated one. The other, and one last question, before we go delve into chapter 15, in our eight verses there, was someone had asked about a sermon last week where I made reference to uh, the death, I think it was the middle of chapter 14, uh, blessed are those who die in the Lord. These will be 
people who get martyred during the tribulation, get killed, and then they will find rest. And I made mention of the fact of also uh, believers who die in the tribulation early on in Revelation chapter 6. And I said that if you're a Christian, like right now, and during the tribulation, if you're a Christian, you die, your body stays here, your spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord in your spirit, your body's here. We bury, we take people, we bury them, we cremate them, whatever, your body's still here. And then when you are in heaven, like if you have a, a loved one who died and was a Christian, say, in the last year, their spirit went to, went to heaven, went to paradise, 2 Corinthians 12. So in their soul, their spirit, all, their full consciousness is present with God now, but they are not in their resurrection body. That was the question. The resurrection body hasn't happened yet. It comes in the future. For most people, it comes at the end of the age. So right now, well, what happens when we, go, we die and go to heaven right now? Well, we don't get our final resurrection body yet. Look at Revelation 6 and try to figure it out. The soul's under the altar, and they were given a temporary robe of white in the meantime, and God said, be patient, that day is coming. Whatever that is. Theologians call it, you are in a... A disembodied spirit. You're a disembodied spirit, whatever that means. There is very little information on the details of that, but we do know the resurrection is coming at the end of the age, and if, uh, I believe, the, at the rapture, uh, the resurrection could very well happen at that time for Christians, because that is exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 say, that we'll be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then Paul said in Thessalonians, not every Christian is going to die. Because at the rapture, some will just be instantaneously translated, transformed into the resurrection body. So, another complicated question. Those are really good questions. This is not easy stuff, some of this. So let's go to chapter 15. Um, we're just picking up right after chapter 14. Chapter 14 was uh, more preparation, giving John a respite to sit back, get the full context, maybe get some encouragement, reminders of God's plan, big picture, before he goes into this granular detail of judgment in chapter 16. But a theme in chapter 14 was the wrath of God, the coming wrath of God, the deserved wrath of God, the final wrath of God. That was clearly a theme in chapter 14 that we saw last week. Uh, that, that wrath, that final wrath in chapter 14, verse 7, he called it the hour of his judgment has come. So God was sending one last warning, an angel with the eternal gospel, preaching to all of planet earth at the end of the tribulation, repent, repent and believe, get God glory, fear him, fear the creator, fear the maker. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Now is the time. World history is ending right now. And if you don't repent and believe, you will not be forgiven of your sin and saved. And you will undergo the wrath of God, temporal wrath during the tribulation, and also eternal wrath when you die. Manifest by being thrown into the eternal lake of fire forever and ever. That was the theme of chapter 14. The hour is come. A day is coming. God is not going to put up with evil forever. This is his universe, his world. He has a plan. He's been tolerating it for 6,000 years. It is in his plan. 
He knows it's there. He's, he's not going to get weary, but he's not going to tolerate sin and wickedness, evil and compromise and lying from rebellious humanity forever. He's going to totally eradicate it. That is the Christian worldview. That's the biblical position, and that's what we see fulfilled, especially in the book of Revelation. A time of complete final justice. You know that passage in Romans 12 where it says, do not seek revenge. Don't retaliate. Even to people who are evil, mean, unfair. Don't retaliate, but leave room for the vengeance of God. Vengeance is mine. I shall repay, says the Lord. That's Romans 12. The ultimate fulfillment of that is here, right now, in world history. All accounts will be settled. In the Pentateuch, Moses wrote, penned that one verse that said, Be sure your sin will find you out. You're not going to get away with it. And if you think you get away with it, and it looks like you get away with it in this life, you don't get away with it in the next life. And you certainly don't get away with it at the end of world history when God opens the books and gives an account for everything. Every wicked deed will be held accountable. That's what we're gearing up for and seeing here. The hour of his judgment has come. And then verse 9 in chapter 10, verse 10 said, uh, he's about to pour out the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength. The fullness of God's wrath is going to be poured out during the tribulation at the end of the age like never before. It would be comparable to the flood, which was universal and wiped out every person on planet Earth. And that's why uh, the scriptures say very clearly that the tribulation will be God pouring out his wrath since the time of the nations. That means post-flood. And then one last one. Well, who initiates all this fury of wrath at the end of the age? It's Jesus. We saw that in He's not the suffering, mild, homeless, helpless servant to be mocked. He, he is now in glory. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is completely sovereign. He is resurrected. He is in his glorified body. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He is almighty. He is the judge. His will cannot be undone. Verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ in the future, at the end of the tribulation, he's sitting on a cloud, and it says... And he's got a sickle in his hand, which is a huge, it's like a long old stick and a big old blade on it like this. And you just, what do you do with it? You whack and you just rip away the weeds with it. He's got a sickle. Time for harvest. And then Jesus, the son of man, sat on the cloud and he swung his sickle basically into the earth. That's what the judgment is going to look like. It's universal. It is sweeping. It is final. It's devastating. It is bloody, according to Revelation 19. So this is the judgment that is coming. And so this theme of judgment continues on, so let's look at chapter 15. Uh, One more description leading up to the final seven bowls of judgment that are coming. This chapter, again, talks about the wrath of God that is deserved. Uh, Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. These seven last angels at the end of the tribulation are, these angels are given huge, flat, saucer bowls used in religious ceremonies, used in the temple, many times filled with blood, very shallow so that you could pour it out very quickly. That's what they're like. 
These are seven shallow religious saucers designed by God himself, and they are full to the brim with his wrath. These are the seven last bowls of wrath or judgment. So they're called, uh, verse 7, they are full of God's wrath. So before I begin verse 1, we just walk through the text fairly quickly because it's pretty self-explanatory. just want to talk a little bit and clarify an issue here about God's wrath. Because we need to talk about God's wrath. I know Christmas is like in two weeks. I don't want to spoil your Christmas. But actually it's appropriate because when you're celebrating Christmas, you're not worshiping little baby Jesus. Little helpless baby Jesus. It is a time to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now he reigns as King of Kings. And he's coming in his fury and his wrath. And if that makes you queasy or uncomfortable or you don't like to talk about it, then you don't like what Scripture says, the fullness of Scripture. We need to be informed by the fullness of Scripture. God has much to say about his wrath. It is his holy wrath. It is his perfect wrath. It fully reflects his character and who he is. God isn't just love, love, love. We're going to see that here in chapter 15. But I wanted to explain a little bit to help us get our brain wrapped around God's wrath, practically speaking. For example, people will ask, well, wow, America's, and they've been saying this for decades, Christians. Wow, America's getting so bad. I've heard sermons from the 1970s saying, yeah, America's getting so bad that one day God's going to pour his wrath out on America. I've heard that time and time. I've heard it for 30 plus years since I've been a Christian. God, someday God's going to pour out his wrath in America. Well, God already poured his wrath out on America. And according to Romans 1, 18, he's been pouring his wrath out on America. Not just America. God has been pouring his wrath out on planet Earth since Genesis chapter 3. That's what Romans 1.18 means. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And unrighteousness of men. Present tense verb. Literally, it can be translated this way. The wrath of God is continually being poured out on planet Earth for the unrighteousness and sinfulness of you, continually and forevermore. It's ongoing. So to ask the question, is God going to pour out his wrath someday on the United States of America? Well, actually, he's been doing that. He's been doing it since Genesis chapter 3. That's literally what it says. So I want to talk about different kinds of wrath, and that's the confusion. People don't understand, well, what is the wrath of God? A lot of times people just think, well, the wrath of God is, uh, the only wrath of God is at the end of the age when People like Hitler and only a few people go to hell because they deserve it. And that's the wrath of God. That's not the fullness of what the Bible means by the wrath of God. Here's what the wrath of God is. It comes in many manifestations, many realities. Uh, and I put them into categories. The first category of the wrath of God I call permanent wrath. Permanent wrath. Where'd you get that term? I made it up because that's what theologians do. Permanent wrath. You can call it historical wrath. What I mean by that is when Adam and Eve sinned or rebelled, God cursed Adam and Eve. God cursed Satan. God cursed the snake, the animal. God cursed the earth. Virtually, God cursed everything. And since that time, we have lived on a cursed earth for 6,000 years of human history. And that's why philosophers and the world, and they talk about the human condition. You know what they mean by that? This world is messed up. And philosophers have been trying to figure it out for 6,000. It's called the curse. 
So when God cursed the earth, he was angry. It wasn't capricious. It wasn't flippant. It was holy. It was planned. It was deserved. But it was wrath. So when God cursed the earth, that was a manifestation of his wrath. And we see manifestations of his wrath through the effects of the curse today in many practical ways. So when you see an earthquake or feel an earthquake, that is a result of the curse. And it should remind you, oh, that is the wrath of God. That is the holy wrath of God. That is deserved. So when you experience an earthquake, a tsunami, a hurricane, a thunderstorm, a hailstorm, all these natural disasters, that's a reminder, oh, the cur- that's the wrath of God through the curse. In the same way that the rainbow reminds you of God's promise and his grace. They go together. Those are reminders. Natural, physical, sometimes even visible reminders. God is a God of grace. God is a God of holy wrath. They need to go together. That's a proper view of God. That's his permanent wrath. By the way, that manifestation of God's wrath answers a lot of questions that humans have. The main question it answers is the problem of evil. That's the biggest philosophical conundrum or dilemma to confront Christianity in history, supposedly. How can biblical Christianity can't answer and explain the problem of human evil and suffering? Because if God was all loving and God was all good and God was all powerful, then why do all these horrible things happen? Well, gotcha. Christianity's false. Bible isn't true. Very shallow. That's, well, they just don't believe in Genesis 1 through 3 literally. They just reject that. Reject the curse. No wonder you don't understand or believe. Take it literally, and that explains everything. We live on a cursed earth. God said so. You will suffer. That's what he said to the woman. Why is there suffering in the world today? Because God said to Eve, you will suffer. That's why. Said the same thing to Adam. Toil. Pain. Not in childbirth. Just living and trying to make an a living for yourself, just being existing on planet Earth will be toils. That is the answer to evil and suffering. And then, well, what about evil? I thought God was good. And then, and then, well, tell me about evil. Well, like earthquakes. Well, earthquakes aren't evil. No, they're not? No. Earthquakes are the wrath of God. I'm not saying earthquakes are good, but they're not evil. They result from the wrath of God in the curse. And they are a reminder. God is in charge. He's the creator. Humans are sinful. So that's permanent wrath, the curse. Then there's consequential wrath. Uh, This is simply like Galatians says, you reap what you sow. This is like the moral law that God put in the fabric of humanity living day to day. You reap what you sow. You do bad stuff, you will reap bad return. That's the book of James as well, Galatians. That happens every single day. When there is a natural consequence that is bad for a sinful, dumb, stupid behavior that we do that violates God's basic moral law, then that is a manifestation of God's wrath. I call it consequential wrath. It's the consequences, natural consequences. Many times the greatest, most obvious, uh, ongoing, continual example of consequential wrath or reaping what we sow, is death, physical death. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. Anytime somebody dies, why did they die? It's a result of consequential death. They, that person, including me, when I die, I am reaping what I sowed. What did I sow? A life of sin being born a sinner. The wages of sin is death. 
So that's consequential wrath. Then there's mediated wrath. What is this? Well, this is when uh, God mediates his wrath onto the earth through a human agency. Romans 13, 1 Peter 3, began in Genesis chapter 9, actually, with the establishment of government. Mediated wrath. So there's permanent wrath, the curse. Consequential wrath, you reap what you sow. Mediated wrath, when wrath is poured out by God using a human agency, whatever that might be. It could be your parents giving discipline to their child through a spanking. That's wrath. Or, as Romans 13 says, that God gave the government to mete out wrath, it uses the word wrath, and vengeance on the wicked. God calls them ministers. Somebody's life-threatening, trying to kill somebody, rape somebody, whatever, and a policeman shoots that guilty person, kills them. That's the wrath of God, actually. Sanctioned by God himself. So that's mediated wrath. Then you have passive wrath. What's that? That's when God abandons people because they refuse to comply or listen. And that's when God says, okay, that's it. I've had it. You're done. And he leaves them to their own sinful devices. When God withholds his grace, he withholds the boundaries. He withholds the restraints. The evidence of this ultimately is someone who has a hardened heart, a seared conscience. This is the passive wrath of God. Okay, fine. Three times in Romans chapter 1 you see it. And then God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He just let go. Fine. You want to keep doing it? God's patience does run out. It's like when God, uh, when Jesus was before Herod, and Herod is pummeling him with all these questions and interrogating him and mocking him, and he's, and, it's, and he's asking all these questions. Show me a sign. Do a miracle. Are you the king? And it says, the scripture says, Jesus said, Jesus answered Herod not a word. Complete silence. It was the silence of judgment. God does that often. Passive wrath, giving them over. Then there's special wrath. This is at times throughout history, biblical history, where you see God intervenes in a unique way. It's not repeated. He never did it before. There's no guarantee he'll do anything like it again. But it was devastating. It was a supernatural act, and it was definitely the wrath of God. You have many examples in the Bible. The flood would be one example of this, of special wrath, unique times of intervention. The flood. Babel, where he intervened and confused all the languages so they would spread out. The ten plagues of Egypt, never been duplicated. When he killed Uzzah, the priest who was carrying the Ark of the Covenant wrong, touched it died on the spot. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 during church service where they lied about what they were going to give to the church and they fell over dead on the spot. That was the special intervention of God's supernatural wrath on those two people. So that's the special wrath. And then there's the atoning wrath of God. What's that? That's when God pours out his fury on a substitute. Atoning wrath. Most vividly in the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12. It was a picture for everybody. Gather everybody in your home, take that cute little lamb, innocent little lamb, and then slaughter it and cut its neck so blood splurts all in front of the kids. Do it in front of the kids. And your grandmother. Blood splattering everywhere, and it's flailing to the point of death. That was a graphic picture of the wrath of God and a substitute being, being deservedly punished for God's fury and his wrath. And then every sacrifice, animal sacrifice that happened since then, 
was a picture of God's wrath. I call it atoning wrath. The apex, the greatest example of the, the atoning wrath of Almighty God, of course, is the death of Jesus Christ. It started with the first Passover. It culminated with the greatest and last Passover, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in Jesus he was slaughtered on the cross. God poured out his full, God the Father poured out his full fury of wrath, his infinite fury of wrath for sin on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Punishing Jesus, and Jesus was atoning for sinners. But that is an example of atoning wrath. And then finally, well, there's eternal wrath. We'll read about it when we get there. And that's just the eternal hell, the second death, the lake of fire. That hasn't happened yet. God made eternal wrath in hell for the devil and his angels, and then unbelievers will be cast there someday at the end of the age. And then finally, there's eschatological wrath, and that's what we're dealing with here in Revelation. What kind of wrath, for the most part, are we seeing in Revelation 6 through 18, including 19, actually all the way the rest of the book, is eschatological wrath. I know that's a big word. Eschatological, six syllables. I'm not going to try to spell it for you. It comes from the Greek word eschatos which is actually in verse 1 of chapter 15, eschatos, the last, that's all, the last things, things at the end of the age, eschatological wrath, things that happen at the end of world history, that's eschatological wrath. They happen in history, Most, many of these are predicted in the Old Testament in detail, they have to be fulfilled literally. Much of this in Revelation 6 through 22 is described as eschatological wrath, it happens on earth, on this cursed earth, at the end of the age, during the seven-year tribulation, and even at the end of the millennium. So those are the different forms of God's wrath. Hopefully that was helpful. Let's go ahead and walk through this passage now. Let's look at it. Romans, uh, Ephesians, sorry, no, <laughs> Revelation. Revelation 15. As we prepare for these seven last bowls, then John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Another sign. He keeps getting these visions as a prophet, as an apostle, divine revelation that he has to interpret with the help of the Holy Spirit. Another sign means another sign similar to previous ones. The last two signs he got were there was a sign that appeared in heaven in Revelation 12, and that was a woman clothed with the sun. That was Israel. Then another sign, 12 verse 3, a great red dragon. That was Satan, and specifically what he's, how he's going to be behaving at the end of the age. Well, here he has another sign. So this is a transition. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. What was it, John? Well, seven angels who had seven plagues. Seven plagues. By the way, the word for plague occurs in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Revelation. I think it was in Revelation 9, it basically equated the seven seals with plague. They were called plagues. And these would be very similar to the ten plagues of Egypt. There definitely is a parallel there. So that's a good word. So the seven seals were plagues. And then also Revelation 9 refers to the trumpets the seven trumpets is plagues. And then now the seven bowls are also called plagues. What's interesting about the word plague, because not all English Bibles give it the best rendering, probably the best translation of plague is blow. Blow, as in a whipping. 
as in a beating. That's what it literally means. Severe blows. Severe whipping. Severe beating with a stick. A severe clubbing. So it's immediate. It is intense with full force. And it does serious damage. That's what a plague is. It's not dying the death of a thousand cuts from a paper cut. This is a blow that is devastating. And that's how God's going to use these plagues, is blows upon the earth. So there's these seven angels he sees in this vision. They have the seven last blows that will be poured out upon the earth. Well, it says seven plagues, which are the last ones, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Two key words there. These are the last plagues. The word last only makes sense in reference to something else. Why are they the last ones? That means that something came before. There were plagues that came before the seven bowls. What plagues came before the seven bowls? The seven trumpets, Revelation 9, and the seven seals. This is one of the reasons why I think, taking it at face value, we see that for the most part, chapters 6 through 22 is chronological. It's building on itself. Because there are many evangelical Bible teachers who spiritualize Revelation, and one of the main interpretations is, well, Revelation 6 through 19 is cyclical. Or sometimes they say it's idealistic. And what they mean by that, or it you have to understand it as capitulation and recapitulation. And like, what? All they mean by that is, well, the seven seals are the same thing as the seven trumpets, which are the same thing as the seven bowls. They're not different. They're all the same. They're synonymous. So there's not 21 different judgments on earth. There's only seven, and God just explains them three different ways. That's all. Three different perspectives. We got four gospels. We got three different explanations of the same thing on these seven plagues. And by the way, these seven plagues aren't even literal. They've been going on throughout all of history. They happen today. They happen in your life. They probably happened last week. They're not chronological. They are not sequential. They are not future. They're not literal. That's how you need to understand it. And they just spiritualize the meaning away. We aren't going to do that. Words matter. They make a difference. And here's the word. These are, there are seven plagues. I believe that there are going to be seven plagues. Literally. I'm not going to spiritualize seven. Oh, seven, that's the number of perfection or completion. Well, didn't that dragon have seven heads? That's not spiritual. That's, whoa. I, I think John's vision, he actually had seven heads. That's what he, he saw, seven literal heads. And the seven heads do mean something because the text tells us that. But he saw literally seven heads in his vision. Here, he sees literally seven angels, and these seven angels represent the seven last plagues. And there will be seven plagues. Just like there were ten plagues, and they, they were numbered in Exodus 7 through 12. Plague number one, plague number two, plague number three. There's ten of them. They're literal. Some of them are just as devastating. I think five of the plagues of Egypt are replicated or repeated here in the bowl judgments. These are the last plagues. There are seven of them, and they are the last ones because there were plagues that came before. The trumpet judgments were different. They weren't as severe, and they come before the seven uh, bold judgments. There were the seven sealed judgments. They came at the beginning of the tribulation. They were not as severe as the trumpet or the bold judgments. These are the last ones. 
This is it. Eschatos. The word for last is eschatos. Eschatos. Eschatology. The study of prophecy. The study of last things. The study of things at the end of the age, which includes prophecy. Revelation is a book of eschatology. Eschatos. It's a biblical word. It's right there in verse 1. So not only are these the last ones in a series of plagues, uh, look at the nature of them, because in them, in these seven last plagues, the wrath of God, the eschatological wrath, and even eternal wrath, is finished. This is it. Completed. Fulfilled. That's within human history and time. See, it's chronological. It is sequential. It happens in time. This is in the future. Finished. A teleste. From telos. Remember when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross? Tetelestai? It is finished. Tetelestai. Same word. Different form of the verb. Finished. A telestai. It is finished. Completed. Done. The end of the age. This is yet future. There is no way, if you just take the passage literally, that you can conclude, like many evangelicals, saying that, well, you know what? If you want to take it literally, this actually happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and they sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. That's what they say. If you want to get literal, that's when it happened. This was fulfilled in 70 AD. No. That was not the last of God's wrath. There's been plenty of wrath happening for 2,000 years. That was localized, only in the area of Jerusalem. This is worldwide. You've got to take it at face value. This is clearly what it says. The wrath of God is finished and complete. Verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. So, don't forget the beginning of verse 1 where it says John had a vision of heaven. What he's seeing now is not what's going on on earth. It's in heaven. In heaven, the throne room of God. First he sees those angels. They're in proximity to the throne of God. And now he zeroes in on that great throne of God that he saw earlier in chapter 4 and 5. And we know that God the Father is sitting on that throne. The Lamb is sitting on that throne. The Lamb has been up and down, active, getting off the throne, walking around the throne, by the throne, in front of the throne, pouring out judgment as the Lamb. And so John is going back. He's in heaven. He's seeing this throne. It's the throne of God in heaven. And he says in verse 2 that he saw like a sea of glass. Now, remember the sea of glass in Revelation 4, 6, where he saw heaven. He saw a rainbow around the throne. And then before the throne in Revelation 4, he saw a sea of glass like crystal. Just beautiful. Flashing lights. And it was in front of the throne of God. The sea of glass. Well, where'd that come from? Well, if you remember... We, we saw that came from Exodus chapter 24, when Moses took the 2,000 Jews out of Egypt down to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and he, God called him up there to get the Ten Commandments and the other laws. And in Exodus 24, it says, God called Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 other elders, 70 men. He said, okay, I want you guys to come up onto the mountain all the other people, they got to stay away from the mountain, for I am holy. They touch this mountain, they die. But you, you're allowed to come up. And only Moses is allowed to approach very closely. Exodus 24, and then it gets to the middle of the chapter, and it says, 
these men went up, and it, get this phrase, it says, and they saw God. Wait a minute. Moses is the very one who says in his writings, no man can, God said it, no man can see me and live. The New Testament says the same thing. What does it mean that, and they saw God? Well, they did. They saw him in his glory. They saw, they saw some kind of manifestation of his glory, a theophany, if you will. And it talks about a throne, and it talks about a sea of glass. Part of what they saw was a sea of glass, where there it's described as this glorious, opaque blue, like a stone, like a gem. Blue color. The sea of glass. Well, what is this sea of glass before the throne of God? That's in Exodus 24 with Moses. Then again with John in Revelation chapter 4. And now here again in Revelation 5. The sea of glass. Well, the best we can determine is one thing that the sea does is it separates people. And if we took all this information, it's God is separated from his creation. When we get to heaven, we will be forgiven. We will have fellowship with God, intimacy with God, intimacy with Jesus, but we will never be equal with God. We will always be separate from God. He is near us. He is imminent, but he will always be transcendent. That's what the sea speaks of. And it's, probably, it's probably literal in some fashion. But the, the creature is forever separated from the creation. Glorious. This sea of glass. It looks like a, it's like a sea of glass. It's not watery. It's like. That's a simile. Here it's mixed with fire. It's described as blue in Exodus 24. It's not described by a color in chapter 4. Here it says it's mixed with fire. That just speaks of the judgment that is coming. The fire of God's wrath. That's where God's wrath comes from. It comes from his throne. And those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name, they were standing on the sea of glass. Wow, Moses wasn't even allowed to do that as far as we know. What a privilege. God the Father telling these, who are these? These are believers. These are saints. They are in heaven. They died. They went immediately to the presence of God. They're in his presence. They're near his presence. Who are these? Are these Christians of all the ages, like many Bible commentators try to tell us, who don't take the passage literally? No. It says who they are. Those who have been victorious over the beast, over the Antichrist, and his image, as described in chapter 12 and chapter 13. This is limited to the, those who die as martyrs during the tribulation. Revelation 12, 11, Revelation 14, 13. So these... These saints who are persecuted like no other saints in the history of the world in terms of its intensity and manifestation of its evil nature, they get a special reward from God, a special privilege. Maybe others do as well, but here they're highlighted. They get to walk on the sea of glass. That typically maybe God would typically say, hey, don't step on that. They get to step on the sea of glass. And that just speaks of close proximity to the infinite transcendent God. Isn't that awesome? What a reward. Standing there. What are they doing? Holding their harps. We've seen harps all throughout the book of Revelation. The 24 elders, uh, those in heaven. Harps, uh, literally just stringed instrument. In the book of Revelation, they are used exclusively for praise. Praise to God. And that's what they're doing. They're praising God. Singing with instruments. It's okay to sing a cappella, but in the book of Revelation, there's always instruments accompanied, particularly these harps of praise, stringed instruments. It's interesting, just a footnote, that in the book of Revelation, there's only two instruments mentioned in heaven, uh, trumpets and 
harps. Or stringed instruments and wind instruments, which is kind of interesting because in Genesis 4, we saw how Jubal was the first to invent stringed instruments and wind instruments. But what does that leave out? Percussion, which was not invented. Anybody can do that. Slap your knee, shake a stick, whatever. That's percussion. So they're going to sing a, a song of worship and praise. That's why we, why do we sing in church, by the way? There are religions that don't sing when they gather together. That is a unique distinctive of Christianity, the church, and even believing Jews in the Old Testament from the very beginning. Singing to their God. Why? What does that represent? Singing at times is one of the most intimate ways you can relate to something in your soul. God is a musical God. God is a singing God. God loves the, the, sings, the songs and the praises of his people. It's one of the greatest expressions at a human and deep level. Singing and praising. And so there's a lot of principles of very godly kind of music here, including instrumentation for us of how songs should be sung, which takes us to the next verse. So they are singing praises to God with their harps. They have the special privilege of standing on the sea close to God. And then verse 3, it says, And they sang the song of Moses. What is the song of Moses? I believe it's Exodus 15. That's the song of Moses. They sang the song of Moses. Jews throughout Old Testament history would sing the song of Moses, including synagogues today sing Exodus 15, the song of Moses at times. So they sang the song of Moses. Uh, they added some of their own new verses as well, the bondservant of God. And they also sang the song of the Lamb. We saw a little bit of that earlier in chapter 5 of Revelation. The common denominator between the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is its music sung by saints directly to God, about God, solely about God. The focus is totally on him, not on me. If me is referenced, it's only that how pathetic me is, or that I'm a sinner, or that I was weak and I needed deliverance. So the theme is on God, his greatness, also his deliverance. That's the main thing. God delivered his people from their enemies, get this, by the blood and the work of the Lamb. Those are common denominators. In Exodus, if you read Exodus 15, it's long, but it says they, so they just uh, got set free from slavery with the Egyptians. They were allowed to loot and take all the property and stuff because God said they could. And then they start leaving to the desert and all of a sudden they look around and then there's Pharaoh and his soldiers coming after him in chariots. They think they're going to die. They get up to the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea. They cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then God collapses the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his chariots. And they are drowned to death. Prior to that, they had just celebrated in Exodus uh, chapter 12, the Passover. The first Passover. Gather his families in your homes. Gather his families in your homes. And if your next door neighbor doesn't have enough money to buy what is required, then that family can join you as well. So you might have 32 people in your one-room house. And I don't care what the local health ordinance is, gather as families in your home. And you will celebrate this Passover. And the focal point was slaughtering this innocent lamb. Taking that blood, putting it on the front of the house, and the avenging, the angel of death would pass over and not kill the firstborn in the house. So the, lamb of, the shed blood of the Lamb of God was what provided deliverance 
for the believing people. Exodus 15 by Moses is just Moses and all the Israelites celebrating that reality. God has delivered us. He is the great one. He delivered us from our enemies, and he did it by the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb. Fast forward 3,400 years plus, and the saints in heaven are singing something similar about the blood or the song of the lamb of God who is Jesus. Jesus delivers sinners by his blood, the blood of the lamb. He's a deliverer. So the theme in those songs is it's all, it is God-focused, it is God-centric, it's based on the work of Jesus Christ as the sacrificial lamb who delivers his people from their enemies and God punishes his enemies. When was the last time you heard a Christian song on the radio or in church recently written where the emphasis is on the righteousness of God and God punishing his enemies? That doesn't happen. That probably wouldn't make the airwaves on Caleb. Well, that's what this song, that's what these two songs were. Uh, let's read it. This is just probably one verse of many. Great and marvelous are your works. What works? Well, it's in the context. The work of judgment, the work of pouring out your wrath, the work of being, bringing vengeance and retribution to all of world history. The work of rescuing the martyrs who die in the tribulation. The work of punishing evildoers. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. What ways? His ways of judgment. That's, the word righteous refers to his judgment. Righteous. That is a legal term. It's a forensic term. First and foremost, it speaks of God as a judge. Righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations. Your jurisdiction is universal. How do we know that he's talking about God as judge? Because it says in verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord? Every living, breathing being should fear you in light of your judgment, in light of your wrath, in light of your power, in light of your vengeance. Who will not fear, O Lord? It's unthinkable that no one would fear you, that someone actually would not fear you. They behold your works, they see your judgment, they see you pour out your wrath, and the idea that no one would respond in humility and brokenness towards that is beyond comprehension. Who? That's why they're, they're, they're asking. Who will not fear you, O Lord? The answer is in chapter 16, in verse 9, verse 11, verse 21. God pours out his judgments and it says, they shake their fist at God, they blaspheme his name. They don't fear him. Unthinkable. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. That's not the typical word for holy. It's a different word. Literally, for you alone are sacred. For you alone are unapproachable. Get this. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, let me ask you, as you're interpreting Revelation, you say, ah, oh, this happens all the time. It happened last week. All of Revelation 6 through 18 has been fulfilled for the last 2,000 years. When was verse uh, 4 fulfilled when it says all the nations will come and worship before you? That has never happened. That requires, that demands a literal fulfillment. It's a prophecy from the Old Testament in about a gazillion passages. Can't quote them all. Psalm 66, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 19. I just keep going. Where all the nations of the world literally are going to come 
and worship Jesus Christ as the risen, resurrected Lord as he reigns as king of the earth in Jerusalem. That is going to happen. You can't spiritualize it away. Like someone doing, say, oh yeah, you've got Christians all over the world. So there it is, you've got Christians of the nation. No, it's not what it's talking about. This is a day this is going to happen. It's going to be glorious. Verse 5, after these things I looked in the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. So there is a temple in heaven. This temple is referred to many times in the book of Revelation. There's a heavenly temple of sorts. The, the tabernacle that Moses built on the earth, which was like a tent, and then the actual edifice and building that Solomon built years later on the earth, that brick limestone building or whatever it was made out of, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, and then the later temple, those were all made after the greater temple, which is in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. And usually when Revelation refers to a temple, it's talking about the heavenly temple. It speaks of where God's presence literally rests and is manifest. All of his judgments come from that concentrated point of his presence in the temple of heaven. And John looks and he sees the temple of heaven of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. The testimony is the word of God. The Ten Commandments were put in the Ark of the Covenant. The rest of the written law that Moses wrote, according to Exodus chapter 24, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. That was on the side of the Ark of the Covenant, next to it. Inside were the two tablets. That's the testimony. It's the word of God, the truth of God. So out of this temple in heaven, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues, or blows, they came out of the temple, meaning they come out of the presence of God. In other words, they just got their marching orders, and they were equipped with the paraphernalia that they needed to bring about God's judgment. Seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen. They are sinless angels. They are good angels. They are pure angels. They're on a holy mission. This is righteous judgment. No human can shake their finger and say, God, this isn't fair. No. This is just, clean and bright, girded around their chest with golden sashes. We could take some passages from Daniel 10 and some from the book of, or the Pentateuch as well. What are these golden sashes? Even what Jesus wore in Revelation chapter 1. The best we can determine that a golden sash refers to someone who is on a, get this, a punitive mission. Punitive, big word, to punish. That's their mission. Hebrews 2 says that angels, many times are given, not to punish, but to help us out. They're ministering spirits to help us. They have other purposes too. Here it's to punish. Then one of the four living creatures or the four living beings around the throne of God, one of the like seraphim, cherubim-like beings, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, filled to the brim, the God who lives forever and ever, the only true God. And the temple, and as a result of all this, it says immediately the temple in heaven was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. So all of a sudden it just fills up with all this smoke. If you go into a building with smoke, you can't breathe. You've got to get out. This isn't bad smoke. This is holy smoke. Holy smoke. I just coined the phrase. Holy smoke. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his powers. And it just filled it so much so that no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels 
we're finished. This is like God is king. The picture here is, is that he's made his mind up of what he wants to do. He's going to exact judgment. He has a plan. He's going to war. He's going to enact it. He knows how long it's going to take. He knows who, who he's directing it towards. And now it just has to be fleshed out. And in the meantime, he can't tolerate any of his underlings being around him. And he says, get out. Out. The king has spoken. There's going to be a limited, limited duration. There's de- it's defined. It's very specific. And then when those seven last plagues have been poured out, then that smoke of God's holy wrath will subside and then created beings once again will be allowed to be in his immediate presence as his word has been fulfilled. Remember all those martyrs who are standing on the sea of glass right in front of the throne of God? And there will be a time to say, here's your reward and you deserve the recognition and now it's time for you to leave the room. Get off my holy glass. I'm about to act. This is all real. This is all coming. This is clearly what the Bible teaches. Many in the world, they would scoff at us. Even many Christians say, oh, this is fantasy. you got the wrong interpretation. can't take the Bible that literally. No, you can. Every one of these things that's revealed in Revelation chapter 15, once again, there was a precedent for it in the Old Testament that was literal. Like I said, the ten plagues of Egypt. I could go on. That sea of glass that Moses got to see. The holy smoke in the presence of God where no one could enter in. We see in Exodus chapter 40 when the tabernacle was completed and the glory of God just consumed it so much, Moses himself could not even go in there. So it happened literally once before. It's going to happen literally once again. And to encourage you is that this is just a reminder, God is in control. Jesus, the judge and the risen lamb, he is managing everything. He's in control of history and the future. Let's give him the praise and the glory for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together and a time once again to to look at Scripture. Thank you for the reminder that even the book of Revelation, which is often neglected, many times difficult to understand, disputed and debated even among believers, that you said very clearly in 2 Timothy that all scripture is inspired or God breathed from you and it is profitable Uh, it can help us grow it can feed our soul it can correct our thinking it can give us hope for the future and if we're believers and we know you personally it reminds us you are in complete control you sit on the throne you reign on high there are no surprises to you whatsoever everything is going exactly according to to plan. God, help us to understand that and believe that. Believe, help my unbelief. That is the, the prayer of our hearts, Lord. And we know that through the Holy Spirit, through the faith and encouragement and hope that comes from scriptures, the encouragement that comes from other believers, uh, we know that we can actually walk by faith and not by sight. Be secure in your promises. We pray all of this to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.